Welcome to the Sidcast, the podcast where we sit down with a fascinating guest each week to hear their story, who they are, and how they got to be that way. My name is Sid Finkelstein, a professor at Dartmouth College, and your host and guide as we embark on a journey of learning, discovery, and good old-fashioned conversation. What's happening right now on the planet? Like, I know we talk about the pandemic in terms of COVID, but there's also a second pandemic in the sense of like what's happening with mental health. Welcome to the Sidcast. This is Sid Finkelstein, and my guest today is Cherry Rose Tan. I first came across our guest today, Cherry Rose, when I was working with a group of venture capitalists in Canada on a uh, leadership program, helping them think about leadership for their own businesses, but also for how they think about the entrepreneurs that they invest in and that they uh, work with. And in one of the sessions, we started talking about entrepreneurial challenges, some of the problems that they face and how actually the fact of the matter is the job of the entrepreneur is not nearly as glamorous as uh, Steve Jobs movies uh, makes it out to be and, and popular culture makes it out to be because in fact it's challenging it's really really difficult and it's stressful and i mean it's not only stress but imagine that you're raising money from your family from friends from outside investors venture capitalists and they're betting on you they're betting that you will be a great leader that you will be the person that will take this idea and make it into something special and that will make them a lot of money along the way and the truth of the matter is that everyone is always you know people are betting on the person more than they bet on the idea so it's really about the individual entrepreneur and so what happens happens when everything is not perfect. When you have some doubts, you know, you're not quite sure as the entrepreneur on what you should do. And if you have some early success, you're not even sure if you deserve that. And are you the right person? Do you have the confidence? Can you justify the confidence that other people have put into you? Are you allowed to express any concerns or fears with anyone else? Are you allowed to be a human being? And that, of course, is a challenge because whether we like it or not, or whether you like it or not, we are all human and we all have our own doubts and questions and concerns. And we're not perfect. We're far from perfect. But when you're uh, put into this position, this job of being the expert, of being the entrepreneur, being the business creator, being the person that's supposed to literally make money for your investors. When you're an entrepreneur, there's this assumption that you've got all the answers, that you can figure it all out. And you know, the truth is you put this on yourself, right? You're the one who chose to be the entrepreneur. You're the one who has the ego to say, yes, I can create something that maybe no one ever created before. You are the one with the self-confidence to convince other people to make a bet on you. It's not like you're an innocent bystander in the process, but that doesn't change the, the core fact that there's stress and there's a lot of pressure and it's a difficult thing to talk about. You don't want to talk about it and nobody wants to hear about that. This is the problem that Cherry Rose Tan has been working on for a long time, a psychologist with tremendous experience in that field, but also a highly successful entrepreneur in her own right and someone who's been in an entrepreneurial family, as she says, for five generations. The epiphany for Cherry Rose came when a series of tragic events affected her own family. And over time, this led to trying to understand and trying to recover but trying to understand what's going on with other entrepreneurs. And a lot of conversations started and there was almost like this opportunity to share a story. People wanted to share their story. Cherry Rose wanted to share her story, but she discovered so many other people wanted to share their own story, not a financial success, but of really a story of great vulnerability and fear and failure. And these stories are riveting, they're real, and they're going to open your eyes to a different side of business and a different side of entrepreneurship than you probably have ever thought about before. As the CEO of uh, Hashtag Real Talk, Cherry Rose Tan is really leading a mental health movement for the technology industry. And she's shedding a lot of light on tech's darkest secrets. She's got over 70 plus champions, as she calls them, people that are willing to speak up and talk about their own personal challenges all across North America. And there are many tech CEOs that are willing to share their mental health stories on her business podcast on iTunes. A mental health authority, she's been featured in Forbes and Inc. and many other places as well. She teaches at the Schulich School of Business in Toronto as well. So my guest this week on the Sidcast is Cherry Rose Tan. Welcome to the Sidcast, it's Sid Finkelstein and I am here with Cherry Rose Tan. Hi, Cherry. Hi. Thanks for joining me and you're in Toronto now, right? I am. Thanks for having me on this podcast, by the way. I'm so excited to be doing this with you. Well, I appreciate that. And I'm going to jump right into it. Your website has, you know, when I looked at it, some really shocking 
information that I bet, you know, maybe if you're an entrepreneur, you knew this, but if you're not, it would be pretty wild. I mean, okay, the average CEO working 12 hours a day, I think we kind of can understand that, but that 30% of entrepreneurs have depression or that the percentage of entrepreneurs who have experienced some type of mental illness is over 70%. Well, I mean, how could that be? How could it be that difficult, that demanding? Yeah, that's a really great question. And what's interesting when you mentioned the stats, right? Like when people look at our website, like that's actually like the first thing that shows up after the header. And we do it intentionally because, so maybe I'll speak to my own experience as an entrepreneur. I mean, I'm a fifth generation entrepreneur. So that means that entrepreneurship, it's, you know, I live and breathe it and my whole family does. So it's like, even when I was a little girl, like I remember, I literally grew up with stories about my great, great grandfather who started our like our entrepreneurial lineage back in the 1800s. And it started off with him like baking goods, like a bakery. Mm-hmm. And then it went from that into let's go manufacture the things that you need to do baked goods. It became like flour and sugar and that kind of industry. And then it started spreading to other businesses. And even in my you know, immediate family, there's my grandparents, their business used to be like in the clothing world. And then my parents are in the tech world. So just a lot of entrepreneurs. And I think what really startled me about entrepreneurship, like when you were saying how shocking the stats were, is like, when I remember being like, when I was younger, I was so excited to be an entrepreneur, like I, growing up with all these stories and like, oh, you can be your own boss and create your own life and all these things. And then when I got into entrepreneurship, it was really like a lot tougher than I thought. And what surprised me about entrepreneurship out of all the things that I was expecting, like in terms of, oh, like what obstacles to expect. I remember like in terms of my preparation to like prepare myself for the confidence to take the leap. Like I was reading a lot of business books, like Lean Startup and all those kind of things and just a lot of mindset books and whatnot. And a lot of the stuff that I learned about entrepreneurship was all this like tactical stuff about how to create your business. And what I didn't see a lot about was like how tough it actually is. Like once you do it mm-hmm. of like the things that you encounter about maybe yourself or your leadership. And then also just how personal the journey really is. Like, you know, if you're leaving your job or you're choosing to pursue your dream and you start hitting obstacles and having to like really go out of your way to try to make the business survive. Like there's a lot of pressure that happens there. And so when I started really getting interested into other people's experiences, because I know I've had my own experiences around mental health, it was interesting to discover that like a lot of other entrepreneurs experience it too. And it's actually really common. So like the 30% stat, I mean, that's that's a lot of people in our industry. It's a tremendous number of people. So sitting around the dining room table or the kitchen table, you heard stories that made you think of or gave you recognition of the stress involved, or you just heard, you know, we did this, we accomplished this, we started with nothing, we learned so much, and, and you focus more. I mean, that's what I'm trying to understand a little bit because mm. your parents, your grandparents, they experience things that you have experienced and that you're just describing for us now, right? How there is this personal challenge and personal pressure. Right. I feel like when I look back into it, like, to be honest, like if I was to go back as a child, like to receive the same stories or to receive Mm -hmm. the same words again from, let's say, my parents, my grandparents, I actually feel like I would understand it very differently. Because like when I think about the stories that they shared, it's like in actuality, it's not they weren't exactly pretty stories. Right. Like in my family, like we're all self-made and Even when we first came here to Canada, despite the entrepreneurial lineage I had, when I first came here to Canada, my immediate family, my parents in particular, they came here with very, very little money. Sometimes people don't see it even looking at me like I am Chinese ethnically in terms of like my skin, my race, like what people see on the outside. But I'm also born like in Manila in the Philippines, right? So I was actually born there. So I'm Filipino, Chinese, Canadian. And so I grew up with both cultures. And for people who don't know, like especially back then, this is decades ago, because I I grew up here in Toronto, but it's like decades ago, like back in the Philippines, like a lot of people are literally living in the poverty line, right? Or there's people living on the streets and not having access to social services like we have here in like Canada and the States. And so when I look back at it, it's like, yeah, I guess my parents really did tell me that like, hey, like your grandma, your grandpa worked really, really hard so that you can go to school so you can have the chance to like be able to graduate 
and, you know, go to a top school in Canada or like, oh, we had to save for many, many years so that like we could even afford to like the plane ticket to come here. So it's like when I look back at it now, I realize it. But I think as a kid, it's like, to be honest, like even growing up in like the school system in Toronto and in Canada, like we have a great education system. But back then people didn't talk about mental health, right? People didn't talk about things like depression and anxiety and stress management and mindfulness. And so when people were talking about those stories back then, I guess it just didn't register for me, like the full extent of what my family had to go through. Right. I mean, there's something really wise in what you just said. And I think it's much broader than the specific example or about entrepreneurship, which is that you have to be ready to listen. And that's you're ready through life experience, through luck of the draw and how your uh, your genetic makeup and your brain works from the power of the communicator sometimes. But if you're not ready to absorb whatever you could learn, not necessarily what somebody tells you, but watching and observing as well as what they tell you, then you're not going to get that message. You know, a lot of people talk about how it's so important for a leader to be a good listener. It's an old story. Everybody talks about it. Very few are all that great at it in my experience. And part of it is you just have to be, you have to put yourself out there to truly listen and to truly understand. Mm -hmm. I think about that with my students. I mean, they listen and they understand, but are they listening to themselves? Are they listening to what's going on within them? And I'm sure that that's something that comes up because you work with a lot of entrepreneurs really as a, as a coach, as a life coach, as a professional coach. And I'm wondering if there's an example or if you could elaborate a little bit, if you agree with what I'm saying, but how not everyone is necessarily ready to listen. And without that ability, you miss you miss a lot and you need to develop that. It's like a skill. It's like a capability in the same way that, you know, knowing how to do a spreadsheet is a very minor capability. You could outsource to someone else. You cannot outsource the ability to listen effectively. You've got to do it as a leader. Yeah. And Sid, I find that really refreshing that you asked me about listening, by the way, because not I'll be honest, not a lot of people ask me you know, about that piece. Right. And what's so interesting. So uh, this movement that I lead, like hashtag real talk, which is where you saw a lot of the stats and the mental health stories that we collect. So we collect mental health stories from tech CEOs, which is an interesting intersection because in tech, the um, reputation that we have as tech founders is like, you know, there's these cool badass people who raise millions of dollars and they build these unicorn companies that end up going on like Forbes and entrepreneur and like the Mark Zuckerbergs of the world, that kind of mentality. Mm-hmm. And one thing that was very interesting, especially I would say in the past year, as our movement grown, because we now have 70 collected stories. So these are people who are public about their experiences with depression, with trauma, you know, topics that for a long time have been taboo to talk about is that I actually started getting investors of those founders who started reaching out or their firms, their VC firms who reached out and were saying like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand. Like I have a relationship with this leader who we invested like millions of dollars into this person. Like the first time that I heard about this particular part that they were struggling with was like on your podcast. Like, how did I not know about this? And, you know, people want kind of the secret sauce. What's the secret to like being able to get that information or to be able to have those conversations with founders? And the secret is exactly what you're talking about. It's the listening. And I find as somebody who's actually trained in this particular skill set, because I I have two degrees in psychology, I have certifications in executive coaching, I have extra stuff that I do with like dealing with high-risk populations. And in my training, it's like, One of the things that they tell you is like when people are going through massive amounts of pain, which especially for what's happening right now on the planet, what's happening with this pandemic, which we don't know the extent of how long the effects are going to go for, especially from an emotional or psychological level. You know, it's bringing up a lot of stuff with people. It's bringing a lot of pain. It's bringing up a lot of really uncomfortable emotions if people are being with anger for the first time or rage or loss or shame or embarrassment. And so when people are going through those things, like it's so important for us to be in a space where we can actually be with the pain. And I find, and this is what I've told a lot of these VCs, I told a lot of leaders, it's like, if you really pause and you kind of just like listen and not coming from a place of reaction where you're trying to fix the founder, you're trying to mitigate risk. If you just pause first just to listen and to actually be with this person, you'll actually see a lot of the times that the way that you speak to these people is not coming from a place of like non-judgment. And it's not coming necessarily from a place of like actually learning and actually being in a place where we're letting go of our assumptions. And so that listening piece is so important because without the listening, like just holding space for someone to share their truth, what ends up happening, which people 
don't expect, right? Is that if we don't listen properly, then the communication, how to describe it, like if that person could have shared with you something really critically important mm. that needed to be solved, they're no longer going to solve it. And the level of communication goes much, much lower. And so the effectiveness right. of your leadership falls as well. Yeah. So non-judgmental, listen more than you talk and, and don't try to solve the problem as soon as you hear about something. Don't try to, I think you use the word mitigate the risk, which is of course the action oriented thing that any investor will think about. And actually any entrepreneur will think about that as a kind of a first gut reaction. There's something wrong with well, let's fix it. It reminds me of, um, I had a guest on in her episode's uh, Coming up soon, Rita Sharon is her name, Dr. Rita Sharon. I don't know if you ever mm -hmm. heard the name. She's at Columbia University. I think you would find it really fascinating. Have you heard of her? I've uh, not, her but it, I want to check out her, her work. For sure. It's around narrative medicine. That's what she calls. She invented the field of okay. narrative medicine. Really amazing woman. She has a um, MD from Harvard Medical School. She was a practicing physician internist at Columbia. And while practicing, working full-time, she went to get her PhD in English literature at Columbia and did that because she realized it's the stories that people bring to any situation that provides this kind of window into who they are and what they're thinking about. In her case, to try to understand what is the patient's problem. And if you think about what a doctor does, you go to the doctor and they want to, okay, why are you here? Well, this hurts or this is sore. I'm worried about this. And, you know, this happened the other day. And they say, okay, and then they ask a few questions and they're drilling down, down, down to try to come up with a diagnosis and then go through a series of potential solutions to the problem. That's classic medicine. And they do that in part because they don't have a lot of time and they do it because that's what they're trained to do. Dr. Sharon came up with a different approach, which is, well, tell me your story. And then she sits there and she crosses her, you know, her arms in front of her and she just listens. And then she kind of asks for more, you know, say a little bit more about that. Could you explain that a little bit more? And the story she tells is really amazing. A patient that just starts crying. Why are you crying? Why are you so emotional? And the patient said, because no one ever asked me. No one ever asked me for my story. And I bet there's a real analogy to the work you do. And we have very, in some ways, there's a clear overlap in terms of listening, in terms of some therapy, really, but in terms also of trying to understand somebody's story and then helping them heal. It really gets back to this theme of listening and looking. It's something you'll want to look. I'll send you some information on it. She's really wonderful. Yeah, I'm so excited to see it. And thanks so much just for even for sharing that story, too, because, yeah, I just I really relate to it in my work. One of the things that surprises people, I do a lot of speaking, I used to be on these big stages, but right now, right now nope. it's like Zoom and those kind of things. <laughs> but one of the things that really surprises people about just even the movement and how we've built it and the personal experiences that I share about what it was like to even having to build the relationships, building the trust just to get to the point where somebody could even share that level of pain with me. One of the most common messages that I get, and it really speaks to what's happening right now on the planet. Like, I know we talk about the pandemic in terms of COVID, but there's also a second pandemic in the sense of like what's happening with mental health. And I mean it very seriously. Like there are people out there in this world that feel such a profound sense of loneliness, despite the fact that in terms of technology, that we're the most quote unquote connected than ever, right? In terms of like social media and things like that. But it doesn't actually show for a lot of people, it doesn't actually show in their personal relationships. And the stories that we've collected over time during physical distancing, like we finally launched our podcast, meaning that I've held on to the original audios of these 70 stories for two years. And people ask me like, why didn't you launch it like two years ago? Right. And part of it, that I tell people is like most of the people that came up to us to share their story, one of the most common comments that we got was like, you know, and it's similar to the story you said, like people would say to me, no one ever asked me before mm -hmm. about who I am as a person. No one ever cared. No one ever asked me about like, can you tell me how you grew up and like, what's important to you? No one ever asked me about my family. No one ever asked me about my values. And what was even more striking is people would say afterwards, as well, that this thing that I just shared with you, no joke, I've been holding on to this for like 15 years or 20 years. And so when we launched out this podcast and shared the stories, not, you know, the champions know we have these stories, but to share it out now to the world, it's been kind of 
even more eye-opening to even receive all of these like personal messages from people who send long, long letters saying like this story that you captured about addiction, like I've never seen someone capture a story like that. And like, you really held that space for me to be able to heal. So it's like, that's what really strikes me is that I can't even imagine the kind of pain people are going through if they're holding on to their stories for, you know, years and years and years. I mean, the work that we need to do around listening. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, can you share one or two of the stories with or without names or even uh, some of the themes? I know also on your website, you have something that says being a founder can really suck. Let's change that, <laughs> uh, which I thought is kind of interesting. And then you've got a bunch of interesting things that people say about that. But is there even one example, uh, one that's really stuck in your head that you think might touch and be relevant to a lot of people? There's actually two stories that come to mind. And I actually don't think that these people would mind because they've actually been very public and they're now people who have been very outspoken about mental health. So one of the stories that we launched, this founder and uh, tech investor, his name is Dan Martell, very well respected in the industry. He's like a multiple exit founder. And we had a story that we captured from him that he actually streamed live to his entire community back when we did the recording. And it was actually the story about his rock bottom or multiple rock bottoms and his experience with addiction. And he was sharing the story about what people don't know about him because, you know, now he's very prolific in, in the tech world. He helps SaaS founders basically like kind of scale and exit. You know, a lot of people don't know that, you know, in his earlier years, especially, you know, young adult years, you know, he struggled a lot with addiction. And because he lived in sort of like a environment where there maybe wasn't as much support or access to resources and that awareness, a lot of the ways that he was coping with his anger became like drugs or became like getting really angry. And so he shared a story with us about, yeah, like how he actually was arrested twice by the age of 17. And then he ended up in rehab. And he talks about how, by the way, even though I'm summarizing, I feel like people should go directly to, to hear Dan say it because it's like the way that he says it, you can feel in his emotions of what he's had to go through right, to be able to, right. to share this. So I just want to acknowledge Dan's courage. But one of the things that struck me in learning from him is he talks about that experience of him being in rehab changed his entire life and it became the foundation for his successes as, as an entrepreneur. Because what he learned at that young age is that emotional management is like one of the most important skills that we could possibly have because the way that we relate to our emotions completely affects how we show up as leader. Like, are you somebody who's processing your emotions and being with them and then coming out and leading powerfully? Or are you the type of person that's not even aware of what's happening with your emotions and you're just like lashing out in people and people's experience of you is like, you're angry, you don't listen, you're blaming your team. And that happens a lot in tech, by the way. Like a lot of people that I talk to, like in terms of teams now, who talk to me about their experience with founders, it's like, yeah, we feel like the founders don't care about us. We feel like the founders are pushing us to work weekends. They're angry all the time. They don't care that like we need mental health days or maybe, you know, we have this ask, but they're not even acknowledging it. So it's like, you know, your team and not just your team, even your family, like, receives that. I'm sure for a lot of people, that's not their intention. But when you don't do work on yourself, that's what happens. So yeah, we recorded that episode. And what was very interesting was like, because it was streamed to his community and Dan didn't know that we were going to go there and I didn't know we were going to go there. Yeah, there was a, like a lot of crying in that episode. And it was honestly, it was such a beautiful, it was really raw. What was really interesting for Dan and I is like, you know, that that particular recording got streamed to his community live and people were really actually really quite shocked and also really quite moved. Like Dan is quite influential in the tech space. so He's got a big following. And what really touched both of us is like there were so many messages coming in from people after just saying like, wow, I totally didn't know that about Dan. And I'm so moved that he went through all of that. And now he's showing up in the world this way. And Dan is, you know, for anybody who does know Dan Martell, he's a man of such service and he's somebody who really lives his values. And so to now understand where that came from and to also respect like the origins of it, that it came from such hardship was really inspiring to a lot of people. Wow. So that's an example of the kind of stories that we right. capture. It's like it goes at that level and that's where the healing oh. happens. 
I know you have another second story, but I just want to say something about this, which is this goes way beyond entrepreneurs, doesn't it? I mean, it's just every single one of us have all kinds of things bottled up that we sometimes we don't even know what it is. Sometimes we know exactly what it is. At Dartmouth, at the Tuck Business School, the students have created something called Tuck Talks, like TED Talks, except they're not about a um, their personal stories. They're not about how I did this or how I did that. And via Zoom, I was just attending one of the recent sessions and it was one of my students. I know her quite well from the classroom, taking a couple of classes with me. And she shared a long story about her life and growing up with parents and the issues that they had. And she said that she was ready to commit suicide as a teenager. And the pain and the hurt and the fear that could lead someone to that place is unbelievable. And no one had an idea. No one knew anything about this. I don't know, but no one she may have shared with very close friends, but she talked about what that experience was, how much she loves life and what she's contributing now. And I was just really taken aback and, and I was proud of her courage in, in speaking about something so personal. And it was another reminder to me that, you know, I might know a lot of people like students or others, but I don't know them to get to that level, to feel comfortable enough to share something that personal is very hard to do. We'd be, I think we'd be healthier if somehow we could share some of those stories. We put on a mask, maybe multiple mm. masks. You know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a professor, I'm a podcaster, I'm a consultant, I'm a speaker. And each one, I have my armor around me to be who I am. It's a role. And I'm only one person. And all those roles are the same. They're all bottled up into, into me for better or for worse. Yeah. I think that's just sitting with that. I think I really like the way that you frame it. Something that stood out to me I think sometimes people have a resistance to listening because they almost feel like, or maybe this is a misconception, people feel like, oh, listening, maybe they're not doing anything or maybe that's not going to solve the problem. And people go straight into like, let me talk at this person. And one of the things that's so counterintuitive, and it kind of goes back to the misconception about, you know, like risk mitigation, those kind of things in my industry is actually very, very important. I take that very seriously, especially even when we capture the stories. There's a lot of safety things that we do for the champions in terms of walking them every step of the way. And even before I did this, like, mental health movement, I was in the crypto industry with my family. And so a lot of risk mitigation, you know, kind of verticals. And the thing that's so counterintuitive is that like one of the best risk mitigation tools is actually listening. Because when you listen and you can observe, you can actually see the warning signs early. And that's actually part of my superpower. It's like I'm known for in the industry being the person who calls trends like five years beforehand, like, you know, design thinking. I'm already there beating, building a coding school and people are still talking about lean startup, right? And for you to be at that level where you can predict trends or you can see, oh, that thing, that's going to fester and it's going to grow if we don't address this. Right. So why don't we just go address it ahead of time? Or why don't we build like in coaching, we call it containers. Therapists use this as well. You build a container, like a special space that's got guidelines so that a person can have a particular space to, let's say, go and explore this particular fear or this particular trauma. And so you know, with listening, it's really powerful in that sense when you start paying attention to what's happened. And that's what I find actually with people. People get really surprised when they have conversations with me. And it's very common. People say things like, I didn't know that we were going to go there. I didn't think I'd be sharing this today, but it actually was easier than I thought. And we laugh about it after. And it's because when I interview people, it's like I can even see it through their body language. And then we go through a set of things like all I can notice there's something that's like, in the background, it feels like there's something they want to say, they don't know how to say it, or there's an uncomfortable motion coming up. And then because I'm in a place where I'm listening and I have the training on listening, I can actually go and now ask permission and say, hey, I'm kind of noticing, you know, I call it out. So I'm like, hey, or label, let me call it out, like label it. So say, hey, I'm noticing right now that you mentioned this thing. And, you know, if it's okay with you, I'd actually like to go deeper because I feel like other people are struggling with this. Like, could we talk about it? And then it gives them the space to do that. So, I mean, that's just even like the tip of the mm-hmm. iceberg of like where you can go with right, listening. Right, but right. yeah, listening is risk mitigation. That's a great way to think about it. Listening is risk mitigation. I hadn't connected those dots quite the same way, but it's completely believable and it's powerful. Did you have another 
second story to share from the many champions. You used the word champion, right? For people that are brave enough. Is that what it is? They have the courage to speak up about what their journey is and, and the things that have happened to them. Yeah, we for our movement, the people who pledge their stories publicly, we call champions. And then we also have supporters. So with hashtag real talk, I mean, technically, we actually have 200 tech CEOs in our community. But out of those 200, 70 of them are the ones who feel ready or they feel like they're in a place or they want to share their story. And I think that's a very important distinction because, and this is something that I find even with mental health that I have to educate people on. Like I obviously have training in this field, but more personally, like I'm a survivor of trauma, like 20 years between depression, anxiety, grief, and trauma. So that combination of the four. And I think sometimes in people's good to want to like, let's break the stigma, let's break the silence. It's also really important for people to know that for some people out there, their way to healing is not necessarily being loud and proud about the fact that they've struggled with OCD or they've struggled with abuse or whatever. So it's important to honor people's just personal healing and personal experiences. And so one of the stories that comes up for me, we actually just released it very recently. There's a story, actually a professor. So her name is Angela Lee, and she's currently the chief innovation officer at Columbia Business School. And she's based in New York. So she's also a tech founder and she runs an incredible organization called 37 Angels, which really educates like angel investors on how to do really good investments. And I am pinpointing Angela's story in particular because, I mean, the reality is like right now in the news, and I feel like this might go on for quite a bit as well, like obviously on the news right now is like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, and the stuff that's happening with uh, George Floyd. And as somebody who is like a woman of color, right, you know, I talked about you know, being mm-hmm. born in Manila in the Philippines, coming here, you know, I have this identity, Filipino, Chinese and Canadian, mm-hmm. seeing a lot of these conversations come to the forefront with, with Black Lives Matters, for me as a thought leader, brings up conversations with me about my responsibility or what I can do in terms of the mental health front. And, you know, sometimes people ask me, like, why has it taken so long for you to capture like the 70 stories? Why has it taken us so long as an industry to even talk about mental health? And one of the things that I educate people on is that a lot of the things that lead to mental health struggles, a lot of them are things that actually have to do with the system, like the systems that we have around power or the systems that we have around language. So for example, with Angela Lee's case, like the conversation that I had with her, we were talking a lot about Asian American mental health, right? She's based in New York. She's lived there for a lot of her life. You know, she obviously teaches at Columbia U. And so she talks to a lot of students, right? And so she's educating the youth. And she was finding in her own experience, being of those both identities, it's like, when you're living in like a culture or maybe in a system that doesn't where it doesn't feel safe for you to share, like how do you get access to do deep work? Like when I say deep work, it's like working on yourself, working on your emotions, right? So, you know, with Dan Martell, you know, he talks about deep work changed his life. And that's the foundation for like his business, his family, all this stuff. And that's why he gets to serve and lead so powerfully. And, you know, in hearing Angela's story, it's like, you know, for example, in a lot of cultures, there's a pressure to be perfect. And I think in particular, especially with just what's happening with people of color, you know, especially if we're talking about people in North America, like a lot of us are really conscious to the fact, like I go to so many tech events, I speak on stages, I'm signed to speaker bureau, so I travel a lot for speaking. And oftentimes when I walk into a room, especially in tech, I don't see people who look like me. Right. Like, first of all, there's, you know, not a lot of women founders. And then there's not a lot of women founders who are like also like people of color. And so, you know, it feels like it's a lot of pressure, right, to have to be perfect because it's like, well, you know, if you're one of the only people who's there and then you make a mistake, well, then like what happens? And then there's all this systematic stuff that comes up for people as well. So even in talking to community leaders right now, like 
I've trained like 20 community leaders in the past month just to be able to hold space with what's happening with Black Lives Matters, because of course there's stuff coming up for people of color and whatnot and people who, are, who have different access to resources even during the pandemic. And one of the things I've had to educate people on is like, you know, because of a lot of these structures that we've inherited, there are really people out there who, you know, for example, I'm really fortunate that myself and my life partner were both in the tech world where, you know, I'm running my own company and the company that my partner works for, it's one of the companies right now that is totally on the rocket ship right now. They're totally doing so well during COVID because they're one of these like essential services, but most people don't have their privilege, right? So there's people, especially from underprivileged communities who, you know, they have to go into work every day because they work at the grocery store. And that's the only way they can feed their children as a single mom. Or, you know, this other person who doesn't have access to the kinds of mental health resources that they need to get better opportunities. And so a lot of the anger and a lot of the sadness and these really intense emotions and uncomfortable emotions people are dealing with, it's like, maybe it's like for the first time, people are actually being very, very frank about the pain that they're going through. And so, and that's why the listening part is so important. It's like, you know, with the more that we can be in a space to listen, like almost like our capacity to be with pain without trying to fix it or judge it or trying to close ourselves off, the more that we have spaces for reconciliation and just healing. And so, I, you know, I just really acknowledge Angela for, you know, just sharing her story about you know, being Asian American, you know, she talks about her sort of her journey around, you know, it, it wasn't until like late adulthood that she was in a space where she could finally share for the first time, like and acknowledge to other people. It's like, yeah, you know what, like for the first time I can be in a place where I can say like, I've struggled with depression, right? And actually be with that pain and be with a lot of the things that was inherited to her. I know the answer to the question I'm going to ask you, but I don't think our listeners are going to know unless they looked you up. How did you get involved in this entire field in the first place? Ooh, yeah. Which is your own personal story, of course. Right. And, and is, as you just yeah. described for some of these other folks, you've been very, you know, brave and outspoken in sharing your story. And I know that even that independent of the healing work you do has played a giant role just to hear someone that others will look at and say wow she's flying high she's got it made she's done this crypto thing she's got this family she's got this and that and it's a bit more complicated than that isn't it it's interesting because i was pausing for a second because i've lived through so much and i'm thinking about what's the clearest way mm -hmm. to or most helpful way to share my story i think okay so i guess maybe i'll set some contextual stuff and then i'll go into the origin for maybe the movement because i feel like that's what's really current mm -hmm. right now so i mean if it isn't already clear from like the podcast i mean i have an obsession around like people behavior conversation listening i'm obsessed about the way that we use language and the way that we use story and i feel that deeply because the way that we hold story and language directly affects mental health right because it's the stuff that we say to ourselves it's what's being said or not said when we're even interacting with other people and the work that i do with hashtag real talk in this movement comes from a very deep and personal place like obviously I have the professional training, but I fight for this every day. I live and breathe it because I've actually lived it and I've seen the other side and the impact and what happens when you don't address mental health and you don't have safe spaces for people to talk about the hard things. I guess, yeah, I guess we'll start in 2017. So I mentioned before, I'm a fifth generation entrepreneur. So I've been an entrepreneur for 15 years. And so it wasn't, you know, not my first rodeo. And back in 2017, because I come from an entrepreneurial family, my family at the time, we were operating a crypto company. And it's a well-known company in Canada. It's a national company. And at the time, I'm trying to think how many years was this? 2017. So I guess we're, we're probably like four to five years already in the fight for crypto. <laughs> so you can imagine for people who are listening to this, like we've been in crypto maybe like back in like 20, I don't know, maybe even 2013, that kind of thing. Already talking about crypto. And back then, like People just thought you're like crazy, right? People didn't have a concept of what crypto was back then or Bitcoin. Like, what's this thing that I can't even see? Like, can't it was carry for criminals, me? right? That's what people were saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. People thought, oh, this is about 
about the dark web and funding, you know, all this kind of stuff. So at the time, like we were in crypto and it was very dear to us because I grew up in circumstances that were really tough, right? So I actually grew up in poverty and my parents are self-made. And it's a lot of, for people who haven't been through that experience, I mean, it's really, really tough, right? To be self-made, especially as an entrepreneur, to like move your full family here, learn the language, all that stuff. And so crypto was really important to me and my brother, who I shared the company with because how we saw crypto was the fight for financial inclusion. And so in in 2017, during this time, after this fighting so hard to finally be recognized, we had our big break with our company. And people didn't know this at the time because I couldn't talk about it because confidentiality. Late 2017, like end of 2017, my family and another family, so it's two families who own the company, we had signed like a nine figure deal with the National Bank and the Toronto Stock Exchange. So it was a major deal. It was about to go all over the news. And then at the same time, what people didn't know about in that four month span. So September 2017, I ended up in a major car accident. It was very random. It was very sudden. So I was dealing with like mental and emotional fallout, trauma, as expected. And then three months after that, my brother, who was the COO and co-founder of the company, so my only sibling, he... I mean, yeah, he basically passes away in his sleep on Christmas Day. And then 10 days after that, my mom gets diagnosed with stage 3C cancer. And then this is wild because people didn't know this publicly. Like we're sitting on a nine figure deal that is like the dream that my brother always had for this company. And so it's just like my experience in January 2018, you know, and I say this despite all of the psychology training that I have, it was like. Uh, Yeah, I'm trying to even find the words for it. I mean, I don't even know if I have the words for it. It's like, it was so destabilizing. I literally went from being a fifth generation entrepreneur and also sibling entrepreneur because my brother and I supported each other through our businesses. So I shared entrepreneurship with my brother for like 12 years. Went from all of that to then all of a sudden being an only child, wondering like, is my mom going to survive? Like, are we going to get her off the wait list for treatment? How am I going to handle the company? I'm grieving. Like, it was just crazy. And so I started a hashtag real talk because what stood out for me was that, you know, like the pain is the pain, right? Like I really had those losses. That's a real truth, right? Like, but I think the part that bothers me, and this is what I fight for, and this is the mission of hashtag real talk and the mission that my team fights for is that. We make mental health and these losses and these things that people experience so much harder than it needs to be, right? It's like that experience of the loss, that's real. But the conversation about it shouldn't have to be so hard. Like, why is it so hard to find like one person that you could trust where you can go deep with somebody? And I was sharing earlier, right? Like there's tech CEOs and these are people who have access to money who share to me, I haven't been able to share that with anybody for 15 years. Like that's a problem. And so that was what I noticed back in January, 2018. It's like, I'm well-connected, you know, at that point, then I was well-connected because I was an established entrepreneur and I didn't know who I could talk to in the tech industry about what I was going through. And so, yeah, so from that point onward, I approached 50 tech CEOs in the first four months um, when I had this theory about like, what would happen if we just like all talked about what we were going through so that we didn't have this illusion that like we were just going through this alone. And I talked to these 50 CEOs to try to see whether or not my theory was correct and asking them what their experiences were as founders and as investors. And what came out for me was like a can of worms Right. Like, because when I start opening that, it's like, wow, there's other mental health experiences, too, that I've not personally experienced that are also really tough for people. Right. Like people sharing experiences about what is it like like to live with bipolar OCD and to deal with the uncertainty, the uncertainty, the stigma about that, because a lot of people still don't feel comfortable talking about that. Or what does it feel like to be a single parent to deal with divorce? Like, I don't know that experience. Right. But but there's all kinds of mental health experiences. And so from those 50 people, that's, you know, those a lot of those people became what we call now the champions who kind of said yes over time and had the courage to share their stories. Why is so many stigmas in life? mentioned a whole bunch of that you know not not even people wanting to talk about mental health it's looked at by many i don't know by many people but it's the kind of the stigma that there's something wrong with you if you have that that you can't get your act together or that's a weakness you don't want to acknowledge especially if you're an entrepreneur that's really really successful or even example of the single mom and getting divorced and 
half the population gets divorced, but yet there's still some stigma about talking. Why is that? Is it just human nature? I mean, where, why do we make the job so much more difficult than we really need to be? Right. Oh, that's a juicy question. I mean, I don't. I actually don't think anyone. I don't know the answer myself. That, so I'm liking this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm grappling it with it right now. I can give you my theory or my opinion. <laughs> we'll that. see over time because I'm actually testing it right now. So where I'm currently at, based on the the research and the data that we've collected through hashtag Real Talk, yeah, my theory on this is that I actually think it's very natural for people to default into judgment. And oftentimes, that what I notice about the judgment when we talk about the stigma, the stigma actually is hardest, like people are hardest actually on themselves. That's one of the big things that I notice that pe- that actually surprise people, especially when people release their stories or they make a post. For example, in Canada, we have a very famous mental health campaign every year called Bell Let's Talk, which is made by one of the two big telecom companies in Canada. And people are very surprised every year when they share their story for the first time through this one day. And they're like, oh, people are congratulating them and acknowledging them for being vulnerable. And so what I notice is like we're often harshest on ourselves, right? And I describe to people when you go into the level of shame, and that's the part that I'm trying to actually solve. Because I feel that that's the biggest barrier actually to mental health is because it's the first step. You feel that shame. You feel shame yourself. Yeah. It's the shame. It's the self, the self-judgment, the self, if you want to call it self, self-judgment, self-hate. Self-imposed stigma really is what we're talking about, right? Exactly. We create that on ourselves. That makes sense to me. That resonates. Yeah. And the other thing too, it's like, I can't, I don't blame people at all for going there. And that's what I'm saying. I actually think it's natural at first for people to have the self-judgment because for the longest time, like we haven't had training on mental health. And I think more importantly, like we actually just haven't had training or conversations on like very universal human experiences. Like for example, growing up, like being educated in Toronto, like I can't even recall a single conversation that happened either in school or at home. Now at home, there was one, but like, but aside from that one, I could I can't think of a single conversation that talked about grief. And, you know, if you actually think about it logically, every single, most people on the planet are going to experience grief. You know, like when, as you get older, right, you know, aging parents, et cetera. And yet we don't have any of those conversations until we actually lose somebody. And then you start feeling the intensity of all of your emotions. So it's like, no wonder that people start defaulting into fear because it's like, we haven't given them tools and people are like, are going through such intense emotions. So what do I do with this? So people go into thinking like, is this wrong? Like if, is what I'm feeling wrong? Am I weak? Because like, I don't see anybody else talking about it. And so that's kind of my stance on that. It's like, that's why the first step, which is having the conversation is so important. And that's why it's important that we need champions that can share their stories so that maybe it's not my story that you relate to. Maybe for some people, people are going to relate to Dan Martell or they're going to relate to Angela Lee or some Mm -hmm. of the other champions. But the more of the stories that we have there, the more that people can go and finally have almost like tangible data and see like, oh, like, yeah, now listening to Cherry's podcast, like those 10 people, like I experienced that too. So I guess it's not just me. And then we can start detangling that it's something when you you realize you're not alone it gives you this self-affirmation the other thing i was thinking of when you were kind of sharing those ideas so there's when somebody dies there's sometimes an irish wake or in judaism there's a shiva maybe in other religions or ethnicities there's other things as well and these periods of time of three one day three days five days a week whatever it is is a chance for family and friends to gather to be there you don't have to actually do much but by doing not a lot you have a chance to kind of share some stories, maybe share some of that grief, maybe not. Maybe it takes longer to go to go through that. And it's a bit of a safe space where there's nothing you're, you're expected to do other than grieve at some level for the person that, that you loved or that you knew that died. And so we wait for that. We have, I don't know if this is a solution, but we have a cultural mechanism to address this when somebody dies. We don't have anything before that. Mm-hmm. We don't have any preparation. And of course, if I were to say that to many people, they'll say, why would I want to prepare for something? It's bad. Spend my time preparing for the fact that someone I love is going to die is a terrible way to think about life. 
On the other hand, there's 100% certainty that that's going to happen. Therefore, and maybe there are groups that talk about this. I'm, I'm sure there are, there are. Maybe it sounds a little bit odd to you also. It's like preparation for grief almost. But I know that when you prepare for and think about something that's important, you're able to deal with it a lot, a lot better. And I wonder, I'm just thinking out loud really now, I don't know, but whether something like this also translates into preparing for the fact that someone you love or care for is going to die. And if you can prepare is too strong a word because it's not like you prepare, you check the mark, you, you know, you check the box. I'm ready. I could do it. I'm ready to go play this football game. I figure it out. It's not like that, but it's something. I don't know what you think about all that. It's just kind of a bit of a ramble on there, but it made me think of those thoughts. Yeah. My excitement actually is to see the future of work go that way. How, how so? When you talked about funerals, and I don't mean to take it lightly, but the image that, that came to mind for me was like, yeah, like when you were saying like, you know, yeah, the only time that we really have a tradition that actually processes a particular emotion like that, that kind of intensity, that kind of loss is during funerals. And then I was thinking, well, what are other types of losses out there that actually happen regularly for people and then there's no tradition so for example like i mean i think it would be maybe healing for people who go through a divorce to have some kind of ceremony or maybe not funeral but some kind of thing that actually honors the relationship because there's a lot to unpack there right or like a business right like for example with the research that we've collected people are surprised to find out that we found out at least in our initial data that founders who post exit so meaning that they've sold their company they did the unicorn goal that tech you know tech is always advocating for selling ipo or you know mm -hmm. that exiting the company people are shocked to find out that when post exit founders it's very common that they actually encounter depression because imagine like that's their baby. They spent like 15, I don't know, 15 years, 10 years. Maybe they were eating ramen noodles, you know, that the stereotype eating the ramen noodle diet for like five uh -huh. years, not paying themselves a salary, having to go through like fire to build this. It's like their baby and they fought so hard for it. And then the day that they let it go and then they went from maybe spending 60, 80 hours a week being the CEO of this company. That's how they're introducing themselves at every single conference. And then all of a sudden being like, who am I as a person now that I'm no longer a founder or CEO? What am I going to do with my days now? Like whoever is coming in, are they going to be able to take care of my team and my company properly? Because I really care about this thing. Like this thing was like my baby. So that's just what occurred right. to me, which is interesting. It's like we don't have things for that. And then we wait until it happens. And by that time, it's like it's so reactive. And of course, then, as I said, people go into fear. You know, people go into lashing out because they're just trying to cope. And so that's why I think that it's really powerful for future work to go there. That's actually what we educate like founders and VCs on, which is that what mental health is about, what listening is about. It's like it truly is risk mitigation because it's like, you know, I think a lot of people sometimes think, oh, well, like, why should I care about mental health? It looks like my founders are OK, right? Like, why do I care to invest in that? Because they seem like we're not in a crisis. But it's like, but wouldn't it be better if you had that already built into the system so that even when the market's doing amazing, it's like, great. So you have an additional capacity now that you can use listening to look at trends, to like to stop problems from getting bigger, right? Because you're addressing problems as they're happening. And then when there is crisis, which right now we're in a crisis mode, you know, people know that it's like, you know, especially your people right now. And especially I know in the States, like if you have people of color who are in your companies, like I'm going to call it out, like your people are dealing with trauma. Right. Like a lot of your people are dealing with trauma. And then, you know, people who are parents right now, a lot of parents are dealing with crazy amounts of stress. Right. And not having boundaries between their personal and professional life. So, I mean, that's the invitation that I have for people. It's like, yeah, we could play at the lowest rung. But why do that when we can build like resilient organizations? Right from the get-go. Absolutely right. You talked about identity, which I think is such a powerful idea, right? All of us are, we're people, we have multiple roles, multiple identities, but we're one person. And when you lose a central part of that identity, that's hard to kind of figure out what you need to, what you need to do or who you are really. Like, who am I? It's kind of this question that people joke about. Well, who am I? And walking down the street. Well, guess what? We all answer that question, whether we like it or not. And if it doesn't get answered, it's still working in our brain somehow. Maybe there's some evolutionary side to why, why that's there. This thing, this point you, you make about, you know, investing in mental health and listening and preparation 
seems to me such a almost obvious thing, except that it's not because people are not doing it. Most companies are not doing that. And that's a lot of what your movement is trying to do for founders, by founders, right? And helping individuals, but helping individuals within companies. And you've described some of the work you've done already. I know there's a lot of other parts to it, but I'm particularly interested in kind of what, where you see this, your own startup, if you will, going. What's your purpose now? What's your goal? What would you like to see? from four founders by founder. Right. Oh, that's a juicy question. And by the way, I just realized, I feel like I want to send you our new website. So four founders by founders was the old name. So now we actually switched to hashtag real talk because we're going into the second phase of our movement. If I mentioned hashtag real talk before that, that's what it was referencing. We'll get the, uh, <laughs> I know. Uh, yeah, I thought that was the podcast, but now I see it's the whole brand. We will get the right information in the show notes. For sure. So I'm the kind of person that gets really excited about creating solutions, especially at the systems level and creating solutions to problems I know are already coming. So one of the things that we've already started with Hashtag Real Talk is we're actually working on a national study across North America to track the mental health conditions, the emotional experiences that happen across a founder's journey. And this has actually been something that a lot of VCs have gotten curious about. And it's something I've been educating them on as well. In tech, for example, because I'm speaking to tech, at least in our community, people really value metrics, right? So for example, there's all these jargony words that people use. Like if for some people have heard about it, it's like there's a seed round, which basically means kind of like your initial investment, like when you're asking investors for money. And then there's something called a series A when you get your first big investment, which is like five to $20 million. And so in tech, we already have these words, like we've already tracked what the stages are. And so my fascination is like, why haven't we thought about tracking the mental health conditions that occur across the stages? Because once you have the metrics, right, and this is important when it comes to the listening, because the listening is what informs speaking. In a way, right? Collecting research is actually listening. So once we have the language from our own community, like this is my experience, that's happening right now in Series A. So for example, Series A founders tell us that a lot of them experience anxiety because there's a lot of obligations yeah, that come in got, and you accept that kind of money, money, right? Now. You're bored. Yeah, real money. Be like, people are going to hold you to account, right? So it's like there are certain things. And once we're excited about collecting that data, because it's like once you have the data, you can actually label it. And once you label something, it starts to become an objective term. And it's something now that's away from it becoming the personal, where the personal is founders right now, a lot of founders who are suffering think like, oh, that depression, that depression I'm going through, it's me, it's my fault, I didn't do enough, I can't tell my investor, da, 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 all this stuff. But then if we can label it, it's like, oh, actually, Series A founders, like 50% of you report that you experience anxiety because of course the level of stress goes up, right? And it's natural. Like if you can explain it, you can label it, then now we can build solutions. And there's solutions that no longer put the blame or the responsibility or the obligation on just the founder. But now we can put that responsibility to the community. It's like, hey, VCs, now that you know that these are the conditions, what can you build with your founders and with your tech accelerator so that we can mitigate the risk? So that, you know, we don't have to wait until someone's in a crisis mode to do that. So that's one. And then I say the other big thing. Yeah, we're actually working on a model right now to teach people how we do what we do. Because like people get really excited. Like, how did you capture that data? How do you talk about hard conversations that do it reliably? And we have a process for that. So now it's like reverse engineering right. it so that we can actually teach it in a repeatable yeah, I way. I love that. That's train the trainers in a sense. And, yeah. uh, and I will send you something. My listeners will also know about this uh, narrative medicine because they have developed a little mm. different focus, but they've developed technology. And that's not a tech, not, that's the word I just call it an architecture. So it doesn't get mistaken. An architecture and how to dissect a story, a life story. And it's based, and in their case, the first principles are critical reading of literature. That's where the raw material theory comes from. Very interesting. The time has flown by and I don't want to keep you much longer, but I do have one last question I'd like to ask people. And it's about advice, which you're in the business of doing in some ways, but it's advice to yourself. And if you can kind of magically go back to when you were 21 years old and you would kind of just see Cherry working on whatever she was doing at the age of 21 and you can kind of roll up next to her and turn to her and say, you know, there's really one thing you want to know about life, about business, about yourself. What would that bit of advice be? What would you tell your own 21 year old self? Honestly, the first thing that came to me, like 
to not take myself so seriously. Mm. So what I mean by this, I take my work seriously. Mm. Like I know the people that I serve, I'm committed to the mission. But I feel like right now, and I was like this for many, many years, I was so serious about everything. And when I mean serious, everything felt so heavy, right? Like that's the way I was talking to myself about like friends, family, my studies, my self-worth, my relationship, everything had this heaviness. And I speak to that right now because I know that there are probably people listening who are experiencing this heaviness, right? And that's a real fact. Like we're going through a very, a lot of change. And to be honest, I kind of wish that I knew back at 21 years old that it's like, hey, it's okay to like choose joy. It's okay to like actually create spaces for play. And I intentionally do this. And I and I'm very open about this with my tech founders. When people ask me, like, how do you do the work that you do? And I tell them, it's like, hey, when you don't see me, like, actually, like, I'm on dates with my partner. And like, we, we go on walks with our dog. And we like, and I like even play video games where like, I'm taking care of my virtual farm and like feeding my virtual chickens. And I do that intentionally, so that I am creating like nourishment for myself, where it's like, I can also enjoy my life as like a human being and not as Cherry Rose, the CEO, who's like doing this mental health movement. You know, that's an invitation for everyone right now as well, who's dealing with the heaviness. Like I know that there's important things that people are fighting for or jobs, maybe even essential jobs that people are doing to support their families. But I hope you can also take time just to nourish yourself and give yourself maybe a little joy or a little bit of play. Yeah, yeah. the term you just use is choose joy, which I think is fantastic. And I have to believe that for a lot of first responders, a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses and other technicians, this has always been the case, but now because of what has been happening with COVID in particular, work could be really difficult. And if you bring it home and you mm. never, you just let it weigh on you nonstop, I don't know how you function. And I think you have almost no choice if you want to be good at what you do, to be able to somehow, to some degree, compartmentalize it, at least a little bit. So choosing joy is a very good framing for that. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Cherry. Cherry Rose Tan. What a great conversation. I feel like we can go another hour easily, but maybe I'll ask you to come back next year and we'll hear about all these adventures. Thank you so much for being on the SITCAST. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the SITCAST. I am really excited to be bringing you season two and very appreciative that you've chosen to listen to this episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the series so you'll never miss a single new episode. I welcome all feedback and would love to hear from you. If you have any questions, suggestions for guests, or any suggestions at all, please contact me via our website, www.thesidcast.com, or you can email me directly at sidfinkelstein at gmail.com. If you like what you heard, I hope you'll tune into another one of our episodes, and please give us a five-star review and share with others who you think would enjoy and benefit from the show as well. The SITCAST is produced by the podcast Laundry Company. See you next time.